0: And then at the very
1: end, I just found this a very nice sentiment. I wrote that part. You did? I wrote this part, yeah. When you see a dazzling summer sunset, delicate desert bird, or radiant flower blooming, you will know that mama's still, still here. Yeah, I remember
0: that. Yeah, that's very sweet. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is a podcast about objects and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warcass. Episode 5, Lanterns, Light, Local. I'm driving in my car, headed to an antique shop close to my house in Tucson, Arizona. I am always filled with a historical curiosity when I enter an antique store. I do the first scan of the objects that are on the surface, then the second scan, the ones hidden or obscured. The antique shop is small, quaint, and eclectic. It's called Patriot House Antiques, but the objects in here are global from asia europe and south america i walk in behind the counter on the right i see an older woman putting on her face mask it's a worker julia she tells me about the shop as we walk through the store in her thick romanian accent she tells me her life story including her study of romance languages i told her that i studied spanish linguistics over the next 10 minutes she and i spoke spanish and portuguese back and forth She could switch through her six languages easily while maintaining her upbeat energy. She shows me the cases of the stuff guys usually like, the military section. Though her array of civil war to Afghan war memorabilia was impressive, I was more interested in a large glass display case in the back of the store. There was a red light atop a fortified metal base. Julia tells me that the light has been here for a while. It immediately spoke to me. The cherry-colored reflective light was hypnotizing. She pulls it out, and I hold it in my hands. It's close to a foot tall. The light is small, but it's substantial. The red light is circular, and it is welded tightly to this white metal base. The store tag says it's a beacon light made by the company Dietz, D-I-E-T-Z, imprinted on the metal base, Dietz, 600, USA. I studied the light, turning it around to see it from every angle. On the first turn, I saw a name. In thin black sharpie, Jack W. Medford was written on the front of the rectangular base. Flipping it around, I saw Return to This Address with an arrow pointing to a Tucson address. He even wrote Emergency Only on it. The words were pulling me inwards, as if I'm the one tasked to return it. I snapped out of my trance. I bought the light, and as I was leaving, Julia told me that Fariba... The store owner was the one who bought the light. I felt a strong urge to find this light's owner. I grabbed Fariba's card and sent her some emails. I wanted to hear her story, any information at all. She explained where she found it, but I thought it was best to talk to her in person. So I went back to the store when Fariba was there. there.
2: there. 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 there.
0: The voice you hear is Julia, and she's actually talking to Fariba. Julia introduced me to Fariba, curly black hair with a calm and inquisitive demeanor. She was surprised to see me in person, so young and not a weirdo as she told me. My incessant emails to her about this light might have put her on edge. But in person, she was just as excited about objects as I was. I asked her, so when did you get this light? She said that she bought it in Tucson in July of 2018, but doesn't remember where exactly she bought it most likely at an estate auction. According to Fariba, this light sat next to three other Dietz lights, and this one called to her the most. And it has sat in her antique store since. In that glass case. She said many people have asked about it, but never taken it home. Until me, two and a half years later. She speculated that the light was possibly for an underwater submarine. But my brief research showed different results. What is this light and who is Dietz? I used the tag written in Fariba's antique store for a start, Dietz Stimsonite Beacon Light. I got a lot of hits, but for lanterns. It seemed that the Dietz company made old lights, and Stimsonite was just a brand name for a specific type of road light. It didn't look like this one though. I remembered something in Fariba's antique store, In a different area of the thin building was a blue Dietz lantern, made after 1914. I was surprised to actually see one. I had seen two pivotal pieces of Dietz Lighting history in the same store. I knew that this modern Dietz Light was somewhat related to roads. So I sent out five emails to transportation historians, hoping to shine light on this mystery. Thomas Hunter and Robert Searing got back to me. They are both curators at the Onondaga Historical Association in Syracuse, New York. Their association, OHA, focuses on local history projects. One reason I was excited? The longest-lived Dietz factory was in Syracuse.
3: My name is Robert Searing, and I am the curator of history at the Onondaga Historical Association in Syracuse, New York. I've been curator at OHA for just over three years now.
0: For the audience who obviously can't see this object, what exactly is the light that I have?
3: Well, you have is a Dietz Visiflash. So it's all metal. So that means it was probably made very late 50s, early 60s.
0: What is the kind of meaning for Visiflash? Like, what does it stand for?
3: I mean, the visible flash. It's a visible flashing light. So let's make it sound like something from a Buck Rogers cartoon. It's a Visiflash. It's transistorized. It runs on battery. If you think about it in the context of the day, again, that sort of space age, late 1950s, early 60s Jetsons technology, it speaks to the era so well. Knowing the print ads as well as I do, it just has this very modern feel, right? I mean, it's quaint for us. But, you know, in 1958, when they roll this thing out, it's, it's a revolutionary technology.
0: So it's a Visiflash. I type in Dietz Visiflash light in Google. And on eBay, there are two lights that looked very similar. But how did we get from lanterns earlier to this high-tech Visiflash light?
3: So from the beginnings of the company, Dietz is making safety lights. I mean, if you think about it, lanterns are safety lights. So safety lighting was always part and parcel of what they did. In 1958, they patented the Visiflash, which is the first transistorized battery-powered safety light. And so if you were anywhere in the United States and then really anywhere in NATO Europe in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you would have seen these Visiflash lights flashing um, at really any construction site. Often they would have been placed on barricades or on cones. Manditz was the largest manufacturer of these lights.
0: You can even see modern versions of these today on those A-frame construction barricades. But they are mostly plastic now. I went to eBay again. Someone was selling the Visiflash light, with the same shape, but in different colors. These were bright yellow and orange, and mine was white, but painted white, like in a thick house paint, definitely not its original color. Jack Medford had definitely added to this light's history. Each layer of the paint holds a story, and covers it. On that metal base, through the paint, I can see a rectangular label, or where one would have been. That corresponds to the VISA lights I see sold online. On the bottom of these labels, it says made by Dietz company in Syracuse with model and patent numbers. But mine is covered with that white paint in Jack Medford's name. There's a latch on the front. It's sealed tight, clasping the lid with the light to the bottom base holding the batteries. This is the first object on the show that is electrical. It can actually turn on. After some research in elbow grease, I couldn't get it open. Robert Searing told me that some people have made videos cracking open the case and turning these lights back on. I found some of the videos, the lights flashing on different settings at night. I asked Robert about the construction of these lights.
3: The metal ones are pretty substantial in weight they could probably take a beating, um, you know getting hit by cars or whatever. I mean they are a, a testament to the engineering ingenuity of the deeps engineers, which would have been doing most of their work here um, in Syracuse, and uh, we actually have quite a bit of uh, engineering drawings in the collection that were found in the factory when they closed it down. Amongst those drawings are actually original drawings of the Visiflash from 1955, 1956. So they've been working on it for a while, but it's a really cool piece of Americana. It's a really cool piece of engineering history and manufacturing history. To see the USA... ...is to marvel at the works of the American engineer. The most challenging engineering project in the history of the human race... ...is our nation. Alight with the brilliance of our engineers' accomplishments. One of the things about this company was they were really led by... ...I think visionary executives and engineers. Thanks to the American engineer. Yes... Thanks to the American engineer. In the earliest days of automobiles, I mean, and I'm talking, you know, 1890s, 1900s, Dietz is making lamps for cars. Chances are good um, if you're going to look at any cars really in particular from the 1890s right through the 1920s, you're going to see some Dietz headlamps. They made bicycle lights beginning in the 1860s and 1870s. When bicycles were brand new, they continued that trend into vehicle lighting, railroad lighting, and then obviously just into general safety lightings as uh, interstate highways and and roads were being built all over. Whether it was in Germany as a part of the rebuild after World War II, the Marshall Plan, or whether it was here in the United States as uh, the Eisenhower administration built uh, the interstate system.
0: That is very true. In 1956, President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act, building roads to handle the high demand of automotive production. And with new cars came new roads and new construction.
3: In this century, America has become a nation on wheels. But when we depend on wheels, we depend also on highways. And therein lies the challenge, building highways and roads and streets fast enough to keep up with the need. Congress responded with the Federal-Aid Highway Act of 1956, providing the staggering sum of $51 billion to be spent by the states on highway construction by 1971.
0: It is estimated that the interstate legislation added 40,000 miles of roads. To put that into perspective, there was only 1,000 miles in 1944. And so the Dietz Company had to pivot from a portable safety lantern to a highway barricade light. I scoured databases for any audiovisual advertisements from Dietz, and there was none. Even Robert, who essentially has Dietz's entire archive, never saw any mention of radio or television commercials, but their print advertising before and after the war was amazing.
3: I mean, they had amazing print advertisements. So the artwork, the colors—I mean, they definitely did not skimp on their advertising. They look like, you know, um, that really sort of modern '50s, '60s feel. They almost look like comic book art. Um, the Visit Flash ones—they're really, really funky. So they were always in that industry, and they sort of continued. Obviously, as lanterns sort of go by and by in the 50s, they begin to concentrate more where they can make money. And safety lighting is, is a particular area where they're able to do that. Dietz is one of the first companies to outsource manufacturing. The first firm was in Hong Kong. and That was really to do lantern production because they knew that a lot of uh, developing nations in Southeast Asia and Asia needed lanterns more so than people in America.
0: This outsourcing was interesting. I went back to look at the light. There were some details about my Visa flash light that I didn't see at first glance. First thing was that all of the handwritten sharpie was spelled incorrectly by Jack Medford. The word address had an extra E and emergency spelled with an S. Then I saw it stamped into the red light glass was made in West Germany. So maybe Jack Medford had close European origins, but that was just an assumption. Ancestry.com showed that Jack Medford was born in North Carolina, His highest level of education seemed to be high school, and he soon drafted into the war after that. In his records, it looks like Mr. Medford fought in World War II and the Korean War. So maybe this light was used at a base in Europe when Jack was stationed there. But what does this West Germany marking mean for the Dietz Light's history?
3: And Dietz, obviously, with its strong German roots. Uh, Robert A. Dietz was, was of course, a German immigrant himself. So this was a sort of both a family tradition and an economic necessity. So they had both a manufacturing facility uh, in West Germany and some offices throughout Europe, Paris, London, Berlin, which is, is, again, a sort of a really cool thing to think about, particularly for us uh, local historians who run regional history museums, that a little bit of uh, our city is is spread all over the world.
0: I went to Ancestry.com to see R.E. Dietz's family history. And Dietz himself was actually not a German immigrant, but his grandparent was, born in the Alsace area, nestled between France and Germany in the 1700s. A nephew of R.E. Dietz, Frederick, compiled a book of all the letters, journals, and experiences within the Dietz Company in 1913. All four of R.E. Dietz's brothers were born in New York, where the company started in 1840.
3: R.E. Dietz traces the origins of the company in 1840, but they aren't actually in Syracuse until 1897, when there is a massive fire at the Dietz plant in New York City down on Leach Street. Um, And that fire shuts production down, and so the Dietz Company purchases one of their main competitors, the Steam Gauge and Lantern Company, which is operating in Syracuse, and they moved right into their facility. That building traces its origins to the 1870s, and it would have been right on the Erie Canal um, and the uh, railroad network here in Syracuse.
0: I asked Robert about a project he worked on at the Dietz Syracuse factory.
3: A few years back, I guess it's probably 2017 now, was really my first project at OHA, was to come together with the building developer who was turning the factory into these upscale lofts and commercial space and to use our collection, um, which for Dietz was actually quite substantial. We essentially had the entire company archive in addition to an incredible array of artifacts going all the way back to some of their earliest sperm whale lamps from the 1840s. So it was sort of a natural fit. And so our partners worked uh, hand in glove with us and really spent a good amount of money to essentially build a Dietz museum within the old factory. So it was a real romantic thing for a historian like myself to be able to sort of bring those lanterns home, if you will. It was a really wonderful project. So the factory that we worked in that have been, uh, that's that been renovated, uh, parts of that building date to the 1870s. It's, uh, it's really, it's a, it's a magnificent building.
0: It is an amazing building, and you can actually stay at the Dietz Lofts. That factory building not only houses tenants, but relics of lighting history that Robert Searing carefully curated. In that book I mentioned earlier, compiled by Fred Dietz, are first-hand accounts and photographs of that fire in 1897. Two months later, founder R.E. Dietz died. As Robert told me, the Dietz Company lasted until 1992, pioneering safety lighting from handheld to highways, for 152 years. So we know who Dietz was. What about Jack Medford? I decided to get out of the house and actively hunt for clues. You know that address Jack wrote on the visit light? Well, it's in central Tucson, only about 20 minutes away. I had my final clues for the podcast. Lanterns, light, local. So I'm here at the house that's on the barricade light. Let's take a step now. Jack Medford was born in 1917 in North Carolina and died here in 1982. I don't think it's been lived in by his family for a while, but there is a car there now. The house is red, flat-roofed, with a large leafless tree, one that reminded me of the tree in Harry Potter. This light had a connection to this house. It seems that Jack moved here in the late 1940s with his wife Marjorie, who was an army nurse. I talked to Robert about the address. What did it mean?
3: Yeah, no, that's bizarre. Sure, I mean, my, my guess would be that he was probably working at a base, uh, you know, somewhere in occupied West Germany. And he saw it and he says, holy mackerel, let me send this for safekeeping back across the Atlantic. No, I, I, it's, it's Fascinating to me. No, that's it's fascinating. These sorts of mysteries are, uh, are you know, what uh, keep guys like you and I going, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. That was one of the reasons I started this podcast. All right, thank you, Robert, for helping me get one step closer to finding out this mystery.
3: Sounds good, Thatcher. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure, and a happy hunting, my friend.
0: All right, thank you, man. Appreciate it. No problem. Bye, bye. The mystery was still obscured about Jack Medford. Did he really fight in World War II? I went to the AAD just like in Episode 1 of this podcast, which is an archival database of all enlisted soldiers in World War II from 1938 to 1946. I found him. Some newspapers state that he was enlisted as early as 1939, but here, it said November of '45, after the war. Jack Medford was based at Davis-Monthan Field in Tucson, just about 30 minutes south of where I live. Could I reach out to an active military base about a soldier who was enlisted there 75 years ago? Yeah. But I want to look at other places first. Newspapers.com. I put Jack's name in, and the address written on the light, all Tucson newspapers from 1920 to 1990, hit enter. A lot of results. Above a small paragraph of his war accolades in a 1950 newspaper clipping was his picture. The headline. Davis-Monthan sergeant, always marcher, not looker, and passed a hundred parades. He was a technical sergeant and a part of the color guard after he was discharged. This means that he would manage firing squads, hold flags at parades, and handle military ceremonies. He was recognized as a well-rounded communal war veteran in Tucson. He was a local, but after the 1950s, no mention of his personal life anywhere. The only time Jack was mentioned was in the marriage section. Every time one of his children got married, it would say the bride or bridegroom is the child of Jack Medford. Then it would list that address after his name, almost as if the address was his honorific. In a 1974 newspaper, one of his daughters was getting married. And again, he with that address was listed. This was his oldest daughter, Margaret. I went to Y Pages, put in her name, and found an address. She lives with her husband, Bob, eight minutes away from me almost in the same neighborhood. I thought of all the times I drove to my grandmother's house, going through construction, and I would pass where Margaret lived. Wait, construction? That's when I realized. I had actually seen these transistorized barricade lights every time I went to see my grandmother. The newer ones are plastic, with larger lights and not as substantial. This is a first on the show, seeing an object exist in other forms, out in the world being used. Not just an antique from a store. I wrote up a letter, cut out pictures of the light, and sent it to them. The post office was practically next to their house. (sighs) To decompress from my intensive research during these episodes, I usually do art. I needed to relax and let all of this information sink in. Then, I get an email. It's Bob and Margaret. They were surprised how the light got to me, and asked how I found them. I sent them emails explaining my research. I could tell that they were skeptical. Like Fariba, the antique store owner, I probably looked like a weirdo sending pictures of a light to them. Bob wanted to meet in person. He said Margaret would love to hear what I found. These were the voices you heard at the beginning of the episode.
1: Uh, my name is Bob Smith. I'm a native, native Tucsonan.
2: My name is Margaret Smith, <laughs> and I am a native Tucsonan.
1: <laughs> and why are we talking here today?
2: Why are
1: we here? Um, it seems like you found a small treasure here that... Uh, Used to be in Margaret's family. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't tell you how long ago, but probably 40 years ago.
0: We're talking under the carport on the far side of my house. Across from my dusty ping pong table that I never use anymore, Bob, Margaret, and I are six feet apart wearing face masks. Bob is shorter than me, wearing a floral shirt with a fisherman's hat, and Margaret, with one arm locked around his, is rocking a blue dress shirt and running shoes. And so. Let's go all the
2: way back. What was the first memory that you have of Jack? Uh, it was my dad. <laughs> yeah. He used to take me everywhere with him, just uh, visit people, yeah. whatever. He had a, a big gathering of friends here in town. You
1: guys used to go fishing.
2: We used to go fishing, yep.
1: Where
0: would you guys do that?
2: Uh, Patagonia Lake. He, he knew the owners of, of one of the lakes down there, you know, at that time. I mean, <laughs> back when I was, what, about... Six or seven, and we just we go camping a lot. We we did a lot of camping.
1: I do remember him telling me one time that the first time he ever had a pair of shoes that he got to wear for the first time was when he entered into the military. He had nothing but hand-me-downs or or whatever up until that point. So when he got into the army, he got his first pair of his very own shoes that he got to wear for the. They weren't handed down from somebody else.
2: He was raised in North Carolina in the hills. My grandmother was a hillbilly.
1: They were out in the boonies. We've been there. We've been to uh, his mom's house there. And it, it is back up in the hills. Uh, hills
2: of North Carolina.
1: He was already in the service like in the late 30s. Oh. So wow. when the war started, he was actually one of the old guys.
2: Probably
1: 17, 18 years old. and. Yeah. You know, the Great Depression there, whatever. Jack was very early into the, to the war when they got to France. They got stuck behind <laughs> the German lines. He and That's I think two or three other, other people with him, and they had to hide in a cheese factory because they got into an area and then they couldn't get out safely. So they hid in a cheese factory and they were there for like about four or five days with nothing to eat but cheese
2: and wine there was wine and, and a little bit of That's wine good.
1: and they would have to go out at night and fill up their canteens and then you know get back in there and you know a cheese factory in france has got to be a pretty epic uh process so he, he would, hated cheese he wouldn't eat cheese. He would not eat cheese <laughs> ever again. Oh,
2: I know. I mean, we yeah. would have
1: tacos, but he would yeah. not put cheese not on put them. Not put cheese on it. Really? Wow. Yeah. And cheeseburgers, no. No cheese, no. just a hamburger. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Little, little things like that that we never tuned into until after he passed. Not a story that he would tell, because he was very close-mouthed about... Uh, the war. The, yeah. the war, whatever, so... And then the war, and he he got hit a couple of times really good. He, that's where he met... No. Uh, her mom
2: uh, mom was a, a, a registered nurse and in, in the war army nurse, army nurse. Mm-hmm. and daddy was injured so that's where they met that's where they were married
1: was it one of the hospitals there in San Diego where they sent him
2: Los Angeles so
1: he never talked about it, and, and neither did March yeah. so I don't know exactly what the extent of the injuries were other than that it was enough to send him home all the way back to the States the second time the first time he went to England and then recovered and went back to went back to Europe. I think he was assigned here to Davis Month and that's how they ended up here.
0: And you guys were all in that house, the one that's written on the address with many siblings, is that right? I
2: had five siblings. Okay. Four. four. Four siblings all okay. <laughs> with yeah. yeah. Thank so
0: you. five five and <laughs>
2: Thank you. I have two, two younger sisters, and I had two older brothers. I was right in the middle. While I was the oldest girl, I had lots of freedom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, my younger sisters took advantage
0: of everybody. But <laughs> <laughs> and What was it like living there? What
2: was that house like? Uh, very very comfortable. Everybody had their own little space. They lived in uh, on Plummer there for a while, and then they bought the house before I was born.
1: I think one of my favorite was... He had his, his spot in the house where he would his hold chair. court, you know, at the end of the dining room table, and from there he could see into the kitchen, the front door, and the TV. And I'd come in and start talking to him, whatever, and and he'd say, you know, you make a better door than you do a window. I didn't catch it for about three months until somebody just kind of, like,
0: moved me over. <laughs> Do you guys remember seeing anything like this before?
2: Um, well, I've seen that one at home. Oh, really? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah?
2: When, when, when we lived there, you know. Yeah.
1: When she saw the picture, she knew exactly,
2: it it exactly oh, really? what it was. It exactly what it was.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Yep. He had it on his work... Sh- there was a shelf to the side, I believe, is where he kept that.
0: And was it painted white then?
2: Um, I thought it was yellow at one time. Yeah,
0: because that's actually the color that the visit flash... Yellow, like the one Robert Searing explained earlier, I told Margaret about the Deeds Company. I actually found a 1955 catalog saying that the Visiflash was sold as Beacon Yellow. When I showed a picture of one on eBay, Margaret said that it was very similar. Jack and Marjorie stayed here in Tucson, living in that house written on the light the rest of their lives. Margaret tells me that Jack went TDY, temporary duty, in Korea. And after fighting in Korea, Jack retired from the Air Force at Davis-Monthan, where his wife Marjorie worked. In the 60s, Jack got a job at TEP. That is Tucson Electric Power, the same energy services company I paid many bills to in college. Jack worked there with a warehouse crew, constantly around loads of stuff and objects.
2: He was a tinker. He liked to tinker. Yeah, that was the thing. that Always doing something with his
1: hands. He could make anything out of junk. Really? He had a little spot out in the back, kind of like what I have. and It was just like odds and ends of everything, Uh, much to our demise when he passed because we had to...
2: Clean
1: it. Start cleaning it out. But, uh, you know, he, he he could make anything, you know, out of... Almost nothing. Almost nothing. I mean, there was all kinds of little contraptions around the house when we sold it. To, like, what does this do? Nobody knew.
2: He he was very brilliant when it came to math. He could look at a whole list of numbers and give you the answer before you had time to add half the brain, of them. What? Yeah. He just... The, he yeah, he, he, was. he didn't use fingers, didn't use a pencil, nothing.
1: He was wow. very good with
2: that. He just liked yeah. to put putter and make things.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: And would he make them in that chair that you guys talked about? It, or did he? Have
2: no, he spot? had a he had he a had little, little workshop outside. Little okay. workshop
1: out and back, and you could actually you could sit in one spot and kind of reach everything. Reach it was a very small everything, room. Everything, you know, the tools were here and there. And, he had you know, a huge workbench. He had a giant workbench, and it had a set of cubbies up in front. And if you needed something, he could sit there in the house and he'd go, go up to the top row, go over three and then go down four and you'll find the screwdriver.
2: And it was, it was you know? always there. Yeah.
1: You know, it. Yeah. And this thing had to have been about 12 cubbies by about 12 cubbies. I mean, it always just wasn't down, a little, yeah. no, it was huge. It was big. And it, it took us forever to clear that out. When, oh, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of stuff in there It's like, what is this? And nobody knew what that tool did. And you could tell that it was made out of another tool and adapted for something. So and he was he was just good at... Uh, Being very creative. Yeah.
0: yeah. And Is that where this light maybe comes into play? Well,
1: uh, he might have gotten it at TEP or, or who knows, it could have been laying on the side of the road. Yeah. He's kind of like my, my hero as far as that goes because my family knows at any moment I may make a U-turn in the middle of the road and go back and pick something up that yeah. fell off a truck or whatever. <laughs>
0: So we
1: see so. kind of like a collector just... Oh, yeah, um, Yeah, tools and stuff. But, uh, it, it, you know, the other thing is quite possible that it was something that uh, DM used to have, you know, after the war, just surplus sales, just because they had to, you know, get rid of it. The same thing with TEP. They used to have yard sales. You know, they, they, they rack up a bunch of stuff, and then they print out a list, and the employees usually got the first shot at it, and then after that, the public would be invited in. So that could have been something like that.
0: I mean, yeah, we, we've been speculating, you know, all these different... Darius, you maybe think why he wrote emergency only? Was that to remind himself, or?
2: Um... I think for the other people he lent it to, possibly. Yeah.
0: And do you think that it was just kind of on the ground? Because it's a, it's a highway barricade light, so mm-hmm. there is that possibility it was hit by a car and just on the ground. and
1: it, it, That might have been where he initially got it. I mean, because right. these things are made to take a beating, so, yeah, and it, it could have been also something because they used to do epic car trips to, to back east. And this might have been something that he would throw in the back of the station wagon, you know, the, the big long ones with the seat facing to the back. Mm-hmm. And they would go to what, Florida?
2: we go into Florida, most of North Carolina, where his, his yeah. mom lived. Yeah. His so parents.
1: that might have been part of his roadside emergency kit for, you know, on-the-road type thing.
0: We obviously didn't know where the light came from. It could be from TEP, Davis-Monthan Base, road trip, or abroad. The road trip theory makes the most sense to me. But this episode is not about the light or where it came from. It's about who it's led us to. Bob and Margaret. People are what give meaning to these objects. Margaret tells me that she was closer to her mother, Marjorie.
2: Bob and I were very close, very close. She was into- uh, Miniatures.
1: Miniatures and porcelain painting. So she was in a couple- China painting. China painting. And then she did, um,
0: what's the thing she did with the, the Purple Hearts? And so one of the, um, the key things to actually help me find you all was a, a small obituary for Marjorie. You know, I, I wrote that part.
2: Huh?
1: You did? I wrote this part. When you see a dazzling summer sunset, delicate desert bird, or radiant flower blooming, you will know that Mama's still, still here. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's
0: very sweet. Thank you.
2: She loved to get up and watch the sunsets. And the location of my house, I could see the sunset before she could. So I would call her up before I went to school. Uh, I was a teacher for 30 years. And we, we'd talk almost every morning. And, uh, and
1: she'd call her and go, right, go out in the backyard.
2: And go out in the backyard or go out in the front yard. There's a good,
0: good sunrise. This is, worth, this is worth going out in the back. So, yeah. And also it seems that, that Marge, Marjorie as well was involved the Tucson community.
2: They were pillars of the yeah. community. She took care of all of the well baby clinic. So anybody base, that had to get shots would see mom. And she was one of the, f- in the one, first or second class at the U of A for nurse practitioner. She, she did her schooling at um, St. Mary's.
1: Right before the war.
2: Before the war. Yeah.
1: With with the time they had available, um, they did a lot of things that they didn't have to do. But they tried to make sure that disabled vets and stuff that all these people were recognized but they did their, their best to promote
2: protection of a mom.
1: People that yeah. So we're still her mom's been gone for ten years and we're still boiling down, you know, yeah. some of the files paperwork. and stacks of pictures and things and and yeah, he was he did the honor guard for the parade. He's got a lot of the,
2: awards too that we yeah. found we found. Really? All the
1: paper, yeah. I believe he has a bronze star.
2: Yeah, a, a bronze and star two, and a purple
1: heart. Two purple hearts, I think. She was very involved in the. It was either purple heart, heart recipients of, or their spouses? Or what was that?
2: It was just a. It was a group that got together. And it was. It was just like a. a place to gather. A place to
1: gather for them to reminisce and, and such. Jack didn't care too much for those, but. Uh,
0: Mom did. Her, uh, Marge really got into it after he passed. Well, if you guys do feel comfortable, how, how did he pass?
2: he had emphysema and uh he took a nap one afternoon and didn't wake
0: yeah. up so part so
1: of it he died both have been taking he was on oxygen not all the time but he was supposed to sleep with it and he did at that time and someone went in to wake him up and he passed in his sleep so it was you know, very peaceful no
2: that yeah, was and he didn't really it was a have a sunday any, afternoon i yeah. remember that
0: Actually, the exact day we did this interview, November 21st, was the same day Jack passed away, 38 years ago. Strange coincidence.
1: Other than the breathing problem, it's just just a lot of old age and a lot of very hard knocks growing up, I think. he had a lot of friends. I mean, we didn't meet a lot of them. A lot of them had passed um, for one reason or another, but when they would have the, the weddings that you mentioned, how you found everything, there was always a group of, of guys there that were friends of dads and such. So. And moms. Yeah. And mom. Yeah. Because we, it,
2: was a, it, was a full, it was a full military yeah, funeral. Yeah.
1: Just with his funeral alone, they did the
2: color card.
0: So I usually, at the end of each of these episodes, I always ask the people that I talk with if they would want the object back, and I would be willing to give this to you guys if you want it. I don't. I don't think so. I think.
1: I think that you know you. What you're doing with what, it. What is, you're doing with it, I think, is important. And if yeah. if, if you get to a point where you uh, are starting to archive things, I think this is something that you would want to keep with your collection.
0: Well thank you so much for coming out.
1: You're welcome. Your I'm so glad you were close by.
0: Yeah, that's true this, this
1: my son loves his podcast uh,
0: oh, really he, um... Bob told me about his son who was an ER doctor and that they have a tortoise farm. as they got into their minivan and drove away, I had an epiphany. I started this podcast because of my curiosity. My mom would buy many cool antiques and display family heirlooms, but she wouldn't know anything beyond that. Object Obscura is an homage to all those times I didn't get an answer. It's a present to myself and these families that share their time, history, and personality. Bob and Margaret have many stories, all starting from this 1950s Dietz is a flashlight. And this light has been on a journey, picked up on the side of the road, bought at many garage sales, then archived by Fariba. Now, it's on my shelf, just like how Jack had it. I look at it every morning now reminiscing on the expertise we heard earlier from Robert Searing and the vulnerability of Jack Medford's son-in-law, Bob, and daughter, Margaret. Every object has a story. I'm glad I could be a part of it this episode. Thank you to everyone who has listened to this podcast. We have been on an amazing journey these past five episodes for season one. We started out with a World War II Japanese phrasebook, then a British Matrix box, to a top hat in a hat box, then to six Czechoslovakian marionettes, and finally, to a 1950s Dietz Viziflash Light. And go ahead and listen to those other episodes if you haven't already. This was the last episode of season one. If you like what you hear and you want to listen to more, then subscribe, leave a review, comment, and tell your friends and family about it. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Anchor, and wherever you get your podcasts. All of the pictures of the Visa lights or of Jack Medford, Bob, and Margaret are on the Object Obscura Instagram page. Do you want your object story on the show? then write me a message on Instagram at object.obscura, Facebook at object Obscura podcast, or by email thatcher at object-obscura.com. It can be a strange, personal, or fascinating story about an object you have. You can also go to our website, object-obscura.com, where you can listen to all episodes and send us a message there. This is an Anchor Distributed Podcast. Narrated, created, edited, researched, and produced by me, Thatcher Warkess. Written by me and Ben Hess. Previously themed music is Held By You by my good friend Zaskia Villa. Check her music out at Zaskia Natalie on Instagram. And that song was mixed by Ivan Villa. Special thanks to Fariba Mitchell, Larry Liddick, Woody Kirkman, Thomas Hunter, Robert Searing, and the Onondaga Historical Association. Follow the Onondaga Historical Association on Facebook and Instagram, and go to their website, cnyhistory.org. And if you're ever in Tucson, please go to Patriot House Antiques. They have great stuff and even better discounts. Thank you to Freesound, YouTube Music Library, Perlinger Archive, and Internet Archive. All other sound and archival credits are in the description. I will be making one more behind-the-scenes episode before 2021, giving you guys a breakdown on how I made this show. There may be a season two next year. Stay safe, keep collecting. I hope your Thanksgiving was as good as your Christmas will be. Thank you.